All right, for our third and final segment today, we're just going to go hog wild into the miscellaneous department. We don't know where the hell we'll wind up. Let's, let's go back to that issue of Mental Floss magazine we cited from uh, a few weeks back. Actually, it's, it's the September 2014 issue. And although we don't always trust Mental Floss, we're just going to roll with some of these. One of the questions intriguing was, is there such a thing as not having an accent? The magazine's response was, even the staunchest dictionary thumping pronunciation stickler has a regional inflection. Still, accents that are more common can sound neutral. In the U.S., that title belongs to the general American accent, which you probably know from the nightly news. There's nothing neutral about it. General American resembles the accent spoken by a small swath in the Midwest, stretching from eastern Nebraska through Iowa and parts of western Illinois. And you know, I got to challenge mental floss right there. My dictionary, which was given to me by my uncle back when I was in college, shows a color-coded map of different accents. And this general American accent, which they're talking about in the magazine, extended out to California. And yes, when I grew up, everybody on the TV news sounded the same. They had a very neutral sound to it. But doggone it. That's how we talk out here in California, or at least used to before the Moon Zappa era. But the magazine said the general American accent doesn't sound funny to many of us anyway because we're so exposed to it. But if the standards change, it may sound weird one day. And standards do change. They said just watch a classic movie. The old silver screen accent, the transatlantic accent, sounds outrageous today. But at the time, it was considered neutral. They had that in a decade or two, our current standards could also go out the window, revealing that it was an accent all along. Mr. Millen has asked me to try and explain what this transatlantic accent is, and I guess I guess I just have to say, well, from my understanding, think Kate Hepburn. Your intolerance infuriates me. I should think that of all people, a writer would need tolerance. The fact is, you'll never, you can't be a first-rate writer or a first-rate human being until you've learned to have some small regard for human friends. Yeah, I have to say, that that is kind of an outrageous accent, isn't it? We've been talking about the high price of college in this program in the past few months, and here's sort of a bizarre addendum, I think, to that discussion of going off to college. Uh, question nine among the 35 that Mental Floss took up was, what's the best college entrance question? They decided it was an 11-way tie. I'm horrified, absolutely horrified, that these would actually be college entrance exam questions. Because only two of them are any good. The two that are any good, I think, are from Hampshire College. What is college for? That seems legit. And one from Kalamazoo College. What invention would the world be better off without and why? Now, as far as the rest of these in the supposed 11-way tie... You be the judge, dear listener. University of Chicago. So where is Waldo, really? University of Virginia, Charlottesville. To tweet or not to tweet? Question mark. University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Most overrated superhero? Question mark. Most underrated superhero? Question mark. These aren't even sentences. These are not even questions. Former kindergarten fear? Question mark. Advice for adults? Question mark. Gadget that needs inventing? Question mark. How about this one from All Souls College in Oxford? Could my brain be evil? 
Well, this one's from the University of Chicago. How are apples and oranges supposed to be compared? And I think the bottom of the barrel from Brandeis University. If you could choose to be raised by robots, dinosaurs, or aliens, who would you pick and why? How about this one? How Chinese is Chinese food? The answer is if you show one of those iconic white pails to people in China, they might scratch their heads. Those little boxes were patented on November 13, 1894 in Chicago by the not-so-Chinese inventor Patrick Weeks Wilcox, who wanted to improve the wooden oyster pails commonly used to transport raw mollusks to fish markets. They're distinctly American, as is the takeout-packed item inside them. Chinese restaurants first started popping up in America in the mid-1800s when immigrants, mostly from present-day Guangzhou, flocked to California during the gold rush. The eatery spread, and by 1920, Chinese restaurants were featuring two menus, one with traditional fare, the other an Americanized version. The latter menu, which featured foods doused in sweet, salty, syrupy sauces, became a cuisine all its own. For example, the broccoli, tomatoes, carrots, and yellow onions found in American Chinese restaurants aren't part of traditional Chinese cooking. And fortune cookies? They're not just American, but they're based on Japanese crackers. All right, we got a few more from that uh, particular issue, but I think we'll, we'll save some of those. Let's move instead into the dismal science, economics. It's sort of predictable, I guess, that as we look at these so-called tax inversions, which allow corporate America to basically not pay their fair share or any share of their taxes, we, of course, find some people willing to speak up for the practice, which reminds us of that segue. And now for another look at Hitler. But apparently writing in MarketWatch.com, someone named Diana Furtgott Roth said, Quit crying about corporate tax inversions. The media, lawmakers, and even the White House have suggested the practice is unpatriotic. But what's gotten lost in the discussion is that the tax inversions have benefits for the American economy. By getting companies cash out from under Uncle Sam's thumb, inversions make it easier for firms to reinvest overseas earnings back in U.S. factories and jobs. She goes on, the practice also raises profits for U.S. shareholders who can channel more funds back in America. Well, there you go. You know, you say what you want about the Nazis. The trains ran on time. I think we'll quote from a letter to the B, which we like to do once in a while because it just shows you people are still thinking out there. A man named John Rieger wrote the paper to say, regarding tax perk proposals seek big final push, next time politicians complain of not having enough money for needed government services, just remind them of all the tax giveaways that special interest businesses get. They always say it's about jobs, but never offer any proof or final accounting. These tax freebies bankrupt government and raise taxes on the rest of us. It's time to end this sneaky corporate welfare. And speaking of corporate welfare, how much are we spending on this downtown arena here in Sacramento, which is probably going to destroy downtown? They keep throwing this figure out of like 300, 400 million. I was struck by a poll in the LA Times about uh, major league stadiums that uh, apparently the favored stadium in the, in the entire Major League Baseball right now is AT&T Park. But what struck me about it was its cost, $255 million, $100 million less than we're spending for a basketball arena. And that's for building something in downtown San Francisco? Come on! 
Talk about corporate welfare. Of course, I guess it, it just does depend on how you look at it. Piece in the Week magazine a couple weeks back referred to a man named Wilfred Rose and described him as one of a dying breed. An article in the New York Times took a look at this guy and noted that the 58-year-old pickpocket has spent four decades studying the pants and jackets of fellow New Yorkers looking for the outline of bulging wallets or a wad of folded bills. Said Rose, when they're wearing a suit or nice pants, you can visualize it. He's made a decent living through thieving. But the Times noted that uh, as people have switched from cash to credit cards and men have traded loose pants for tighter jeans, such payoffs have become increasingly rare. Said Rose, we're disappearing. (laughs) Referring to pickpockets. Young people, they aren't interested in this. It takes too much patience. Ah, these kids today. Now, Rose apparently did recently uh, spend three years in the slammer after being caught in the act, and he's now considering giving it up. He told the paper, I'm too old for this. I used to think of it as a game, but jail makes you think of it as stealing. Hey, you know, maybe if some executives from Burger King got thrown in the slammer for a while, they might tend to think of it as stealing. What do you think? Of course, all this does come down to how you look at things. Um, are Uber and Lyft ride-sharing companies, or are they basically taxis under a different name? We'll be talking more about that, I think, in the future, but uh, yours truly did get a chance to get a lift, courtesy of Uber, when kayaking down in Southern California. And I think I said we need to talk about that little adventure, and we haven't done so for weeks and weeks, so let's take a few minutes and do that. I have to admit that not necessarily being a big fan of Southern California, but there is one part of it that uh, I cannot help myself, I have to love, which is the beaches. SoCal seems to have one of the world's great concentrations of wonderful beaches and water you can swim in, which is something we can't, uh, can't brag about here in Northern California. Our water's freezing ass cold. But uh, in July, my pal Gordon and I, veterans of paddling around in San Francisco Bay and Monterey Bay, uh, took a trip down to Newport Beach to put in there and paddle as far south as we could manage, which turned out to be Dana Point. It was about 17 miles on the water, which, which is probably a little bit long for a day of relaxation. But I got to say, paddling along past Newport, past Laguna Beach, and heading on down to Dana Point was pretty cool. Some very, very lovely scenery. After our first long paddle, a, a pal from medical school days who had volunteered to help rescue us showed up and ferried us to and fro the various vehicles and made the whole thing quite a bit more manageable. She was not available for day two, however, so when we put in again, this time in northern San Diego County and paddled south from Carlsbad, we employed the services of Uber after taking out, which was a good gig. I believe I reported at some point in this program in the past how startled I always am to go out in San Francisco Bay or Monterey Bay and find out that there's just nobody else kayaking out there. I have to think this is pretty unfortunate because you have some amazing scenery out there and it's it's pretty safe if you use, you know, take sensible precautions, have rescue equipment, etc. But there were some tropical storms down off the Mexican coast and a little bit more surf than typical for this time of year, which did make uh, paddling along just outside the breakers occasionally interesting. On a couple of occasions, swells seemed to come out of nowhere and almost got us, but we, we, we dodged the bullet. 
You certainly get a lesson in why it is important to have ports and bays when you're looking for a place to take out and you are not uh, too keen to try and slip through breakers. I have to bring Gordon to the show and tell the story a little more properly in the future. It, it's pretty, pretty amazingly fun. On our final day, we put in at Torrey Pines and paddled down past La Jolla, visited the caves, went around the bend, and finally wound up in Mission Bay. The thing I think that recommends this sort of activity is the old rule about boating. And I'm sure you've heard it. The two happiest days in a boat owner's life are the day that he buys the boat and also the day that he sells it. And yes, I've experienced both such days. And um, I just got to say, a little boat that you paddle yourself in, it's not that expensive. There's a lot to be said for that. All right, we've got less than one minute left, so let me just throw in one more item from Mental Floss, which was the question, who owns the Mall of America? Well, surely Americans, yes? In fact, it's an Iranian-Canadian family. The five Gurmezian brothers, who were granted full ownership in 2006, which puts the Mall of America firmly in Canadian hands. Does that mean the Mall of America is not paying taxes to the federal government? We suppose so. Anyway, that does it for today's program. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, who in fact produced it from the island republic of St. Kitts and Nevis, which is a bit of a novelty. Anyway, we'll see you next week at the same time.